Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy. Find out more on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Docio podcast with me, Edmund Conroy. This is the first part out of two on the meaning of linguistics. Joining me today will be Professor Emeritus Frederick J. Neumeyer from the University of Washington. Professor Neumeyer is a world-leading scholar on linguistics. Together we will be looking at the evolutionary origin of language, the politics of linguistics, autonomous linguistics, and how linguistic forms and grammatical features affect our thinking and conceptualization. So, without further ado, let's begin the meaning of linguistics. Please welcome my guest, Professor Frederick J. Neumeyer. Can you give a simplified definition of linguistics and a little of its history as an academic discipline? Okay. Um, linguistics is usually defined as the scientific study of language. Um, the Linguistic Society of America just changed its definition to the scientific study of language and its applications. In other words, there are a lot of people who do linguistics who aren't, don't think of themselves as doing science. So for example, um, increasing the percentage of people in Wales who speak Welsh and what to do about that, that's not science but it does require some knowledge of language and linguistics. Um, the field of linguistics uh, goes back to the early 19th century when uh, scholars discovered that there's actually quantifiable relations between the Germanic languages, the Romance languages, and amazingly for the time, Sanskrit and Persian. And this led to the research program uh, in the 19th century, which was devoted to finding the relationships, making them explicit, reconstructing the ancestor languages um, uh, to all of these families. Um, lingu linguists didn't really turn their attention that much um, to grammar as it's spoken. Now, there were always people who studied that, but they were pedagogically influenced, not scientifically. 
Um, it's conventional to say that all this modern linguistics started with Ferdinand de Saussure in the early 20th century, who was one of the first, certainly not the first to say, let's look at language as it works. Let's look at grammar and see how the grammars of the language are organized. And that set off this incredible research program of structural linguistics and generative grammar grew out of that. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. And of course, Saussure is also the man behind semiotics, which is hugely influenced outside of his field. Yes, but has zero influence within linguistics. what, What linguists have always been interested in is what makes language different, unique, human language. Uh, whereas what semioticians do is try to find what language has in common with other sign with other systems of symbols. I mean, if you want to do that, that's fine. I don't find that very productive or interesting. I mean, you could say language is a system of signs, and you could say national flags are a system of signs. So the red in our flag stands for the fallen martyrs or, you know, I mean, that's fine, but I, I just don't find it very interesting and it has nothing to do with human language as far as I can see. I mean, obviously we, we use the phrase like the language of something and we're talking more of the semiotics outside of the field of linguistics, mm-hmm. whereas you're actually talking about the, the words, the, the grammar and things. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. One thing that I, I noted you'd written, it was in, I'm trying to think whether it was a book or a, um, an article. I cannot remember because I did read quite a few things. I'm not a grammarian. Uh, I'm not very good at this grammar stuff. So for me, I found it quite difficult, but that's me. I think a lot of people who understand sentences, unlike me, would, would not have a huge issue with it. But um, one thing I noted you'd written was about proto-languages, that, that is languages from prehistory or proto-systems, I think you called them. Can you just explain a little about the kind of the origins of language and the proto-languages? How do we know of their existence, how they differ from language after kind of the rise of Homo sapiens? This is a really hard question, which doesn't stop now hundreds of people from trying to figure it out. The problem with language, of course, is it leaves no fossils, right? Uh, that's one problem. So you just can't look at some uh, the brain of uh, a hominid of a million years ago and say, oh, this is what they could do with language. The other problem is the only records that we have are written records, and written records only exist going back four or so thousand years and only for a very, very small number of languages. So that doesn't give us a lot to go on. In other words, we can't just extrapolate back from even the oldest languages that we know about, the oldest Chinese or Sumerian or Egyptian or or whatever. And then, because even that, because that is so recent. So it's a lot of speculation, speculation, which is not totally uninformed, but that's why there are so many different ideas about how language originated. Uh, Usually you look for clues. It takes some kind of advanced communication system to organize a hunt. 
to have a complex social structure, arguably to do um, complex art, although that's not clear. And so we look, anthropologists or linguists interested in these things, look to see when we have evidence for complex human organization. And then they say, well, we needed language for that. The problem is you get answers going back as recently as 100,000 years, maybe even less, to a million years. Also, we assume that language was simpler once. We have that to go on. Furthermore, we assume we look at even the smartest primates we know of today, chimps, bonobos, gorillas, et cetera, et cetera, we know that their brains aren't ready for language, even sign language, despite a lot of mythology to that effect. Uh, we assume then that our common ancestor didn't have language. So that still gives us, uh, and for, but, but however, we know that ape cognition is fairly advanced. Uh, they have cognition without language. So we assume that at some point, there was some rewiring a mutation, if you will, in the, in the brain of pre-humans that linked cognition to a vocal outputs, to the vocal tract, possibly to sign language abilities, uh, signing abilities. There was some, and then after that, things happened really fast because the vocal tract changed less than a million years ago to make more speech sounds possible. In other words, we have the oral cavity, the pharyngeal pharynx, all of these things, nasal cavity, all working together allow for dozens, hundreds of different sounds, which makes communication by language easier. But when exactly this happened, uh, how it happened, there has to have been a mutation, more or less by definition, a brain rewiring. But when it happened and how it happened, we, don't, we can only speculate. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So the article I was reading, it seemed to talk a little bit about the grammar of these early proto-languages, mm -hmm. uh, specifically of Homo erectus. One assumes that's almost impossible to be sure about their grammar as there is no written record. Right. It's usually you call what they had proto-language, which was basically words without grammar. And people look at the very earliest stages of, stages of pidgin languages today um, and say, well, maybe it looked like that. In other words, at some point, words, whether spoken or signed, developed, which corresponded to homo erectus cognition. And then the big change is when grammar became possible. That is a rewiring to allow the expression of complex vocalizations that corresponded to the complex thoughts, which probably already existed because ape cognition is so much more advanced than ape expressive abilities. So the potential for language was there. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Neumeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Uh, are we saying that 
kind of early language proto languages would have been you know as you see it in the cavemen films of pointing and grunting or is that is that but that's expressive so i'm assuming it wouldn't have been like that at all as far as we can tell no probably not i mean i would say at first there were words and then there was grammar and grunts i don't know there were probably grunts you know long before that but anybody, I mean, the cavemen, as, as depicted, um, were humans. I mean, they had uh, family structures. They went out hunting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they probably had something that looked a lot like human language. Because okay. this is probably what we call cave. I mean, you can call anything a caveman, I suppose. But what we call cavemen probably represent early humans, uh, not yeah. pre-humans. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. You, you mentioned that um, our nearest uh, evolutionary cousins, the apes, mm. that they're not even able to do sign language. Are you saying that the, the legendary, was it Lucy? wasn't actually sign languaging or is that lucy and the others have signs but there's a difference between having signs and having sign language um nobody except for some true believers i mean i mean any deaf person will will just laugh when they're told that lucy and washo and all the others have sign language they don't they have some signs a lot of them just seem to be random signing machines. But in fact, some of them can, they clearly have signs for want banana or they have signs for this or for that. Having words, this is like proto-language, having words isn't having language. Language, human language, every human language, all 6,000, however many there are, have grammars, fairly complex grammars. That is, they have systematic ways of combining words to form sentences. No, chimp or whatever has that uh, okay they get up maybe to the level at best of a human two-year-old okay that that makes sense i mean i have a two-year-old i've heard the babbling you're listening to episode three of the docio podcast with edmund conroy and professor frederick newmeyer find us on twitter at docio podcast So you also wrote that the proto-systems don't show any evidence of having hard, complex vowel systems. And you gave an example, and my computer has auto-corrected when I was typing this out, um, as Rachel, I cannot remember what the original word there was, uh, becoming a soft C or an S sound in, like, electricity. So I wanted to know, why is this hard, complex vowel system important? And why don't we say things like electricity? Uh, rather than electricity. Uh, why and when did this kind of change first become, begin in English? And what does this tell us about the where languages are going in the future? Uh, well, it's a, it's a big question. Um, no, 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 it's, it's fine. I mean, but um, all I can do is give some impressions and opinions. Um, I take 
what has long been the mainstream view that language didn't originate for communication. That is language originated as part of cognition. And again, there was some kind of mutation rewiring that allowed language to be used for communication. But communication was not the original purpose of language uh, that just happened. However, once language existed, all kinds of changes started happening that were caused by the needs of communication. Um, that's why languages change. Uh, languages change for lots of reasons. Uh, English changed because of the Norman conquest that flooded about hundreds, thousands of French words, old French words into English. That was not to improve communication. On the other hand, sometimes language is left alone I mean, speakers want to make things easy for themselves, uh, but hearers want clarity. And so there's this constant back and forth between what the speaker would like and what the hearer would like. You can never go too far in one direction or the other, or language wouldn't be usable. And that's why all languages are in some kind of uneasy compromise and that's why language is, a language might change electric, electricity. Well, that goes back to changes in, in Latin uh, or uh, actually French and then antecedent languages where there were sound changes that made things simpler for the speaker. Um, but, you know, over time, things are not that stable and so you go back and forth and back and forth. Um, so for example, look at French. Uh, French has nasalized vowels. Uh, so en is en, it used to be n. Well, we know that it's simpler um, if a vowel is followed by a nasal consonant like n to nasalize the vowel, then the, the nasal consonant drops out. So that was something that made things easier for the speaker, but then you look at French, uh, French phonology is actually quite complex because you have these nasalized vowels that you didn't used to have. So a change that may, a change that makes something simpler in one way doesn't necessarily make it simpler in every way. And so languages go back and forth and change. Um, there's no overall direction to language change. Uh, if there were, after a hundred thousand years, all languages would be maximally simple. Uh, but no, it doesn't work that way. So, so we see languages effectively becoming more complex. Is that well, what you're saying? Not necessarily more complex. There are simpler. There, there are changes you could call simplification, and changes that you could call complexif complexification, complexity. Uh, and um, there's just no. It's kind of a recycling back and forth rather than an overall directionality. Um, so. We don't always know why language changes in a particular way. And sometimes it's, it is fashion. Sometimes it's just because some group starts doing something. So for example, um, the, there was a big, big change in um, the pronunciation of English in the 18th century. Um, that, and you may have heard that in fact, North Americans speak English more closely to the way that Shakespeare did than you do. Um, because in the 18th century, 
uh, English in English change, English in, in Britain in the UK changed, not everywhere, certainly not in Scotland, uh, but in a lot of parts of the UK where R stopped being pronounced at the ends of words in, in words like father uh, uh, or another thing, the, Shakespeare said dance and half and can't. That changed in England in the 18th century to dance and half and can't, but it stayed the same in North America. So our pronunciation is actually more archaic. Shakespeare said fall, not autumn. Shakespeare used the word gotten. Shakespeare said dove and snuck as past tenses, which died out uh, in the UK. So, um, but what caused this change? Nobody really knows. Why did English start being pronounced? It's not a simplification. It's not a complexification. It's just a change. Uh, probably there was some trendsetters uh, in the London area who found a certain pronunciation you know, charming or fashionable and it was imitated. So this okay. is not a change that makes things more functional, more easy or more difficult. So language changes for so many different reasons. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So I've heard it said that um, the the, um, the 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 first English dictionary by Johnson um, and the um, proliferation of the printing press were really important to the standardization of English. Uh, but that's a very simplified answer, isn't it? Well, that certainly, that certainly helped uh, codify certain things in English, certainly spelling. Um, that is before, well, there were dictionary makers before Johnson, although he was certainly the most famous early one. Um, before that, people spelled words the way they felt like it, whatever sounded good to them. Shakespeare spelt his own name um, half a dozen ways, but not, never, as far as we know, the way that it's spelled now. Um, uh, and also dictionaries, grammar books helped codify um, educated speech. Uh, okay. So in, in fact, making things up like this bizarre thing where you shouldn't end a sentence in a preposition, you know, um, that never existed in English. It was just made up out of the head of a grammarian in the 18th century. And it was copied because this guy had a lot of influence. Um, but the question is, I mean, why don't we all talk the same? Um, if what leads to different dialects uh, is isolation, um, you know, before the 20th century, well, before the 19th century, very few people in the in Britain traveled more than a few miles to their market town, maybe. And so those are the situations where dialect differences really do well. But this is not true anymore. People travel everywhere. Sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I'm yeah. just thinking, so I, part of my background is history part of it uh, not not history it's theology but history an element of that and also uh, communications the reason i bring that up um is in the 1700s in the uk we had a guy called john wesley in the us you had a guy called francis asbury um who traveled around on horseback 
huge, huge lengths of the country, uh, public speaking, um, were these, and they created what um, the Methodist circuits in, in the US and in the UK. Um, and there would be traveling preachers doing loops in areas that stay there for three years, move on to another area. Would this have been, and this is the 1700s, this is the end of the, just before we're seeing the rise of the, um, of the kind of codified English, would these kind of things have been quite influential on spreading um, a more uniformity in the way that things are pronounced in dialects, so to speak, as people had more and more of a, a perhaps an educated or slightly more refined speech? Well, that would certainly have an effect. Uh, there wasn't mass education, uh, or obviously the mass media then, um, which has had a leveling effect. But one of the things that, I mean, when I, I taught uh, introduction to linguistics for many years, and I would say that uh, American North American dialects are dying out, we're all talking more and more the same. To a certain extent, that's true above a certain level of education and income. But in fact, dialects are not dying out. Uh, people from, you know, who live in Pittsburgh, who identify strongly with the Pittsburgh area or Baltimore, or they're, they're, they're still talking their traditional way because group identity is the countervailing force to the effects of education and the mass media. People want to talk like their peers and Especially, they want to distinguish how they talk from people who aren't their peers. And so, if you're in, if you're a working class person in a North American city, um, you're probably not losing. You may lose a little some of the edges of your traditional dialect. I think it's true in the UK as well. Um, but you continue uh, a lot of the the same pronunciations. I mean, I was in, I was born in Philadelphia. I'm a Canadian now, but I used to be an American. Um, I was born in Philadelphia, um, and I went back there, uh, and I, people were still saying things like, we went around and around all the boat and sold mute over the war. Uh, I mean, really strong accent that's not even intelligible, probably, to most Americans. Um, and people, are, they're happy to talk like that um, because they, they, they identify with the city um, and with their peer group. And it's a way of showing that, that there's this, this unity somehow. Um, so dialects are not dying out. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So it's interesting, you, you've actually jumped ahead to one of my questions, which I had listed as near the end. Um, and I think you've also started to answer one of the questions from uh, the, the, the crowdsource questions, the listener questions. Um, but I, I'll jump ahead to my, my question that I have here, which is, it is a, it, I asked about the UK context because that's what I'm familiar with. But obviously you've alluded to it in the American context too, that we, these... Um, these spoken dialects obviously in form uh, have their own grammar. They have a slightly different grammar from the standardized English sure. of either the US or the UK. Um, 
so um, that's like local turn of phrases and sentence structure. Um, that's often laughed at. Uh, within an educational system, within educational systems, there's been a heritage of trying to quash these uh, so that we all kind of speak this standard English. Um, and it has meant that many people feel left out and excluded by the standard Englishes that we use in the UK. As I said, I actually wrote, I imagine the picture is not entirely different in the States. So quite often, if you don't speak well enough the standard English, um, you're made to feel slightly less intelligent. Um, uh, is that true? Is your spoken grammar, I don't, and your dialect, a sign of intelligence, or is that really just a snobbery? And are we? And I, I, I am very careful. I bring up a politician here, which doesn't mean I agree with them. But are we demonising politicians such as Donald Trump linguistically when the sentences deviate from standards? Um, and that, and obviously, get um, should we get so het up about grammar as long as our sentences are easily understood by our audiences? As clearly, Donald Trump's sentences were quite easily understood by his audiences. Um, whether we agree with that audience is another matter. But he had an audience; he had a base. He spoke to that, and the media and perhaps academics to some degree very much vilified him for his speech patterns and his grammar and. Uh, things um, and other things as well. I'm not not dismissing all the other things, but um, specifically his language was often pulled up. Is this? Yeah. yeah. Well, let, let's. I mean, let's distinguish language from or dialect from style. Donald Trump grew up in New York. He didn't have a. He doesn't have a very strong New York accent. Um, he has a little okay. bit. One, but I mean, it's not very strong. It's mostly kind of standard American educated English, <laughs> but he has all these stylistic quirks. Now that's very different. <clears throat> He's stigmatized for not being able to express himself very well. You can express yourself in any dialect of English, um, but some dialects are stigmatized. Like most academics I know who grew up in the American South do everything they can possibly do to lose their accent because it's so stigmatized because you conjure up these images of redneck racists, um, <clears throat> uneducated people. And so they do what they can to lose it. <clears throat> Excuse me, other American forms of speech are considered much more, if not prestigious, acceptable. And so people, like if you have a Boston accent, that conveys more sophistication and urbane, and urbane life. Um, but all of this is just totally impressionistic. I mean, <clears throat> you can have an American Southern accent and be very, I mean, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, their grammar was totally standard American English, but their pronunciation had a lot of Southern in it, which they exploited <clears throat> as a way of saying, look, I'm one of you, I'm one of the people, I, I talk this somewhat differently. So stylistically, I mean, Donald Trump's language doesn't come from his speaking a particular dialect, the problems, it's, it's, that he, it's the way he expresses himself. And you can express yourself badly or sloppily in any dialect. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter 
at Docio Podcast. Uh, let, let's move on to the kind of the listener questions then. Stephen from Glasgow says, how or why do we distinguish dialects as distinct from languages? Well, there's an old saying, what's the difference between the language and a dialect? Well, a language is a dialect that has an army and a navy. Um, in, other, in other words, there, there's no sharp distinction. And a lot of it is purely sociological. We talk about the Chinese language, even though there's, or the Arabic language, even though people, people from Morocco and people from Iraq cannot understand a word of what the other is saying if they're talking their own Arabic. On the other hand, we talk about uh, the Serbian language and the Croatian language now, um, even though they're essentially the same. I mean, there are very, very few differences. But for political reasons, the Serbs want to say they're speaking Serbian. The Croats say they want to, they want to say they're speaking Croatian. So, um, I mean, I've heard Scots lowland dialects uh, that I couldn't understand at all. Um, maybe you as well. I don't think you're Scottish. Uh, I'm not. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, but why? Why is? Why are they called English dialects of English rather than a separate language? Well, just because of history, they've been part of the Anglosphere. Well, there there is a move to. Um, I know within Scotland there is a move to make Scots uh, a dialect, uh, a language. Sorry, um, kind of. Um, and then I think there's another one called Doric. I'm not an expert on on this one. I think it's called Doric, which is another form of Scottish language, or perhaps that is Scots. Is that not an expert here. Um, and again, I think there's a push to kind of see that. I mean, in England, you've got Cornish, uh, which is a separate language. It's of the same branch as Welsh and uh, Breton. Um, but I think it's there's also another form of Cornish, which is more English. I'm not an expert, but some of them become languages, I think. Or at least there's the... Within the groups, they become, you know, they're defended as though they're languages. Um, so, so essentially, rhetorically, dialects, languages, it just depends on context, it would you have said? It depends you, more on politics generally than anything else. Um, Norwegian and Swedish, they're very, very similar. Um, they're, they're certainly a lot more similar than broad Scots and educated Edinburgh English. Uh, yeah, separate, separate languages because of the history. It's funny you should talk about Swedish. When I did my master's here at Stelling, I had a friend who was from um, Sweden and he would talk about um, Norwegian sounding like drunk Swedish. Uh, and <laughs> and they had all of this, uh, the, these, yeah. these comments about and, and yeah, I, I can't remember, but, but the, you went through the, the three kind of Scandinavian countries, Finland, Norway, right. and Swedish. And although they are different, that there was this this joke about one was more drunk than the other um, right. in the way that it sounds and things. Um, or so, okay. Norwegian spoken with potatoes in your mouth, that sort of thing. That, that, yeah, I think that was it. One was, I think Norwegian might have been spoken with potatoes in the mouth. What, Swedish was drunk Finnish or something like that, or I don't know. Uh, but I just, just think that's funny description. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
We move on to the um, final set of questions. So uh, these were obviously, um, I've pinched them from James Lipton and modified a couple of the questions to make them more polite. Um, he borrowed them from Bernard Pivot in France, who borrowed them from Marcel, last name forgotten, uh, who was writing in the 1800s and answering them on a, might have been the turn of the 1900s. Um, I'm not particularly crash hot on this, but these are the questions. There's 10 of them. They're meant to be quick fire, but we'll see. Uh, and they're meant to be fun, just a bit of lightheartedness at the end. What is your favorite curse word? Oh dear. I mean, I, I suppose I use them all the time, but um, I don't like the idea that there's curse words because it kind of, you attribute word magic to shit or fuck or stuff like that, which I don't really like. I mean, they're just, some words are more expressive than others. And I, if I stub my toe, I might like more likely to say, shit or some expert but i mean i don't think i have any favorite one i just like i i would like to think that there aren't any such things uh what is your favorite word my favorite word i don't use it much i always liked avuncular it has a good sound to it what does it mean <laughs> um somebody's avuncular it comes the root of uncle is in there somebody is avuncular if they act uncle like to you kind of oh. like kind of uncle oh that's very Oh, he always acts so avuncular, meaning that a little bit patronizing, but kind. What sound or noise do you hate? Well, I can easily answer that. Um, in Seattle, I lived, I bought a house not knowing that was right on the path of seaplanes taking off. Um, I should have figured it out. Um, and I moved eventually, bought a different house. But... The sound, Vancouver has seaplanes too, but they don't take off right over my house. So that sound that sometimes actually made glassware shake a little bit, that's definitely because of my experience, my least favorite sound. So what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, I'd like to be a gardener. I'm a volunteer, my wife also in the local botanical garden and before COVID, um, I would spend hours a week there. I'm a plant labeler. So I label plants in Latin. And in fact, all of my tattoos are flowers labeled in Latin. So I, I don't think I've ever met a professor with tattoos. I have a lot, but it's okay because they're labeled in Latin. That's brilliant. And so, uh, yeah, when COVID dies down a little bit more, I'll be able to start my volunteering again, but it's shut down right now. What profession would you not like to do? Anything medical. I'm too squeamish. You're listening to episode three of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. This was episode three of the Docio podcast, hosted by Edmund Conroy, interviewing Professor Frederick Newmeyer. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast or on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. And please don't forget to subscribe using your favourite podcast listening platform. This has been the Docio Podcast, Episode 3, The Meaning of Linguistics, with myself, Edmund Conroy, and of course, Professor Frederick J. Neumeyer. That's all we have time for 
on this episode. Join me on the next one when I will continue my conversation with Professor Frederick J. Neumeyer. Until next time, have a great life. Thank you and goodbye. Music was provided by freepd.com under a Creative Commons License Zero. Additional voiceover work by Hannah Conroy. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021, The Docio Podcast. If you would like to support the Docio podcast, then please visit our website shop to purchase merchandise or visit patreon.com forward slash docio to financially subscribe to the podcast. Your contribution alone could help the podcast make many more episodes.